absolutely love my job. I am so grateful for all of you and, and for you guys being here. And, you know, what's better than, than my job being a week before Christmas to proclaim that, that heaven is coming? Um, and, and I want to invite you all in that. You know, next week we're not going to have service in here. But um, at the back are these little cards, and you can take them uh, as a reminder. We have a special Christmas Eve service for those of you who stay in town and maybe don't have the option to travel to see family, um, or maybe you're having a, a family and friends dinner here. On the 24th, we have a, a Christmas Eve service we do every year called Nine Lessons and Carols, and it's Christmas carols and lessons from Scripture about the birth of Christ. Uh, and not only is there the service, but then afterwards we, sor- we have a, like a potluck dinner. And so if you don't have a place to be for Christmas dinner or Christmas Eve, rather, um, please let us know at the office, and, and you're welcome to come and join us in fellowship with our church. So, uh, and then also, if you have friends or neighbors or something, these are great to use to invite them as well. Um, because who doesn't like singing Christmas carols, right? So, um, tonight we are going to uh, sort of finish what we started last week, talking in John chapter 1 with the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. And then we also read that really fun passage from the end of Daniel, um, which by itself is sort of confusing, I I confess. Um, if, If that was all we read, uh, from the book of Daniel, it would be just a whole lot of questions. Um, but if you look at that, in the scope of what we've been studying for Daniel for, for weeks and weeks, we see that this is the vision Daniel is getting of the end of days. This is the vision Daniel is getting of, of heaven. Here comes heaven, like we just sang. This is the vision he is getting f- for when God will rule forever and ever, and there will be judgment on this earth. But before we can get to that, before we can get to the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies and, 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 you know, this eternal kingdom that we'll live in forever, the good news, we need to get to something very important that happened in the middle. We need to finish talking about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, this incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so tonight I've titled uh, the sermon, Grace Upon Grace. And if you look in, in your scriptures, it's actually taken out of um, verse 16, but in our Bibles here, and what it'll say on the screen, it says something a little different, but we'll talk about that, uh, and I'll explain it. So why don't we go ahead and open up your Bible to John chapter 1, if you like. Uh, if you'd like to reference what we're going to be talking about, it's also on the screen, as usual. Starting in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, let's just get into it. Verse 14, he continues on and says, listen, the word, this Jesus, the word of God, all of the promises and all of the things God promised in the Old Testament, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, 
immediately, one of the things I always think about when I read scripture is, if I wasn't a Christian, if I have never read this before, how would I interpret this? How would I deal with this? You know, if if someone asked me, for example, this is a great exercise I do with the youth all the time. If a friend of mine who was not a Christian picked up a Bible, read this, and said, we have seen his glory, what does that mean? (laughs) Now, because really, have we? I mean, John is preaching and writing as someone who walked around with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who saw him do miracles and healing people. You know, John saw him preach. John saw the transfiguration up on the mountain. John saw the resurrected Jesus. Surely John is writing this and saying, yes, we've seen his glory. But the cynic inside of me says, well, wait a minute, have I seen his glory? Right? And I, and I want to encourage you, as you investigate Scripture, as you investigate your spiritual life and your relationship with God, think about the things God has, has made known to you. Think about the things you've seen God do in your life, seen in, in the lives of those around you. You know, never forget, in Romans chapter 1, you can just mark it down or remember it if you want to read this, Paul talks about that we are all without excuse. I think living in Switzerland, you know, chiefly of all, we can look outside and realize we have no excuse not to know that there is a good God who has created all the things around us. And so when he says we have seen his glory, this is an important detail sometimes for us as we read to stop and think, where have I seen God's glory recently? Where have I seen God's glory? And this word he's talking about, this Jesus coming in, what he's saying here is really cool. And I I think I've shared this in here before. It's one of my favorite things in Scripture when we talk about the incarnation, is that he came to dwell among us. It's the exact same literature as basically saying he came and set up his tent in your camp. He has come to your side, to your camp, and set up his tent with you, that he might dwell with you, that he might live among you. How crazy is it to think that through the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ was born into this world, which is what we celebrate next week, that he would be among us. See, it's not that he's, you know, far away. It's that he came to be with us, to lead us, to teach us. And in verse 15, he says, John the Baptist bore witness to this. You know, having known who John the Baptist was, writing in the first century, people would have known about this guy named John the Baptist. That John the Baptist bore witness to this and actually, if you know the stories, gave his life for this. Before Jesus ever died on the cross, before he ever proclaimed himself as the Son of God before Pilate, as we worship him now, John the Baptist gave his life to preach the truth of repentance before God. He called a very powerful person out for their sin. And that person had him killed. And since then, how many hundreds and thousands of people throughout history have testified to the goodness of God, to the need for repentance, for the need for growth, and have given their very lives for it. So what then does this miraculous incarnation of God bring to us? Verse 16 says that from his fullness... From his fullness, from all who Jesus was and did, the promises of God came to us. And in our text here, it says that he gave us many blessings. But in your Bible, if you have a newer updated NIV or an ESV, it translates it grace upon grace. 
that it is given more and more grace. From God's fullness, all of who he was and did, grace was given. Now, this is kind of a cool detail that John writes out. You know, this, this prologue we're talking about was not just him jotting some things down without thinking. This was very specific. And he said that there was grace upon grace, meaning that there was more blessings, more grace given when there already was blessings and grace given. If you look at verse 17, for the law, wait a minute, the first grace, the first blessing God gave was the law? Yes. Remember when Jesus says in the Beatitudes in in Matthew 5 or 6 and then other places, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? that the law was not actually works-based, like a lot of us think about it, but it was faith-based. And it was a promise from God that, that, that he would redeem his people. Now, now, reminder, and this is something we talked about last week, Jesus was not God's plan to fix something he messed up with. And in the same way, Jesus was not to fix the law because the law was broken. People broke the law, but the law itself was perfect. It was a gracious system in a time when these people needed a God. And God saved them. He showed them grace by bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. He showed them blessings by giving them the law. And he gave them even more grace by giving them land to live and to prosper. It was all God's grace. And we know what happened then is that the people were the ones that ruined it. And then God in his infinite wisdom says, Hey, I'm going to give you grace upon grace. You have ruined the law. You've showed you can't handle that. Why don't I just love you more, give you more grace and more blessings through the word becoming flesh? And then I wonder, in the same way that the Hebrew people spurned the gift of the law, all you have to do is read the book of Judges, right, to know that just every generation they failed, failed, failed. What have we done then with the grace of Jesus Christ? In the same way the Hebrew people were given the grace of the law to prosper, God has given us the grace of Jesus Christ that we might prosper. What have we done with it? You know, I'm using a lot of words like incarnation and and all of these things that are sort of theological words, but this is really essential, isn't it? This is essential for us to understand that this book did not just sort of come about. This is theology called open theism, where it's sort of the, the idea is that God made up things as, as things happened. We choose, and then God reacts to our choices and then changes things. It, the things we read in the Apostles' Creed, the things we believe as Christians, is that this was God's plan. That this, this grace God gave, whether it be through the law, whether it be through Christ, whatever it is in your life where you see God's grace, that is unmerited favor in the eyes of God, Right? You have it, but you've done nothing to deserve it. And yet God continually gives it to us over and over and over again. So we use big words to try and understand it, but really we must know. We must know that these things and studying this reveals to us more of who God is, and we cannot run away from these difficult topics. How could the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Well, it's absolutely essential for our salvation. Because we want to see God, don't we? I remember being a teenager and thinking, and and I've shared this before too, you know, Thomas, I love Thomas, the doubting disciple. Ah, he's the best. 
because he says what everyone else is thinking, right? And, and I just remember thinking, I, I totally get Thomas, because if I could just see Jesus, if I could just physically see Jesus, this, this whole Christianity thing would be a lot easier. But think, we want to see God. We just want one proof, right? Just, just give me one piece of empirical evidence that I can just take and that I'll know for certain. But look at verse 18. He says, the reason God gave us grace and blessing upon blessing was because no one has ever seen God. And, and, and we know from the Old Testament that no one can see God. Right? This is why he had to send Christ. In Exodus 33, it says that if we saw God, surely we would die. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees God on his throne and it says it ruins him. And he needed to be revived so that he might be able to live because in light of his sin, seeing God absolutely broke him down. And because of Christ, because of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us that we celebrate at Christmas, we are given the ability to see God in a way that we can handle. Someone who walked the earth like we do. Someone who was tempted as we are. This is why the incarnation of Jesus Christ is such a huge deal. This is why we make such a big deal and we light candles each week in anticipation. And this is why we have special songs. I mean, how great is it that you can be sitting in the cope and hear joy to the world on the intercom, you know? The Savior reigns. Let earth receive her King. This is a huge deal. You know, I mentioned this last week. This is our theology of Christ. This is our Christology. And in our Old Testament passage, now getting back to that weird Daniel thing going on, the prophet Daniel is, is talking with God's messenger about the end of days, uh, talking about heaven, when, when, when not only Jesus has come, but he will come back now. And God reveals a lot of things to Daniel. We saw in our text that God doesn't actually reveal the specific time or date or place, similar to what Jesus said to his disciples, right? That no one knows the time or place but my Father in heaven. And I was looking at these two passages together, and on, on the one hand, you know, we see God having this clear plan, you know, including Daniel and telling him, hey, one day I'm going to take care of it. One day, I, you know, we will rule forever, uh, giving a message of hope, something to look forward to. But it's not in Daniel's lifetime, is it? And, and Daniel must remain in exile. And God has given Daniel a certain amount of grace, though, as we read his story, right? He has given him encouragement. He has given him protection. He has given him the promise of love and care for the future and care in the present time. And that's Daniel's story. And then, and then we look at our, our story from John 1. We look at this Christmas time that we're celebrating. And we've been giving the same thing. Christ has told us that he will love us. Christ has told us that he will care for us. He has sent Christ to bring joy to our lives. And yet still, here we are. You know, I once ha had a friend of mine who was a pastor, and, and, and one of the things he would always ask in his sermons is, so what? Right, so who cares? And I know that sounds crass, but really, how does Jesus Christ, uh, being born in the flesh, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, change your Monday tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, every Christmas we go through this, right? If, if you've grown up in the church, every Christmas and every Easter you hear this message. And, and yet we still have struggles. We still have questions. We still wonder, God, what are you doing? 
It, it seems to be some disconnect because we know Jesus is Lord, yet our Monday is still going to be probably rough. And we wonder, like Daniel, how long is this going to happen? How long are we to endure? How long are we to wait? There's evil and sin and pain. And we have questions. And what's interesting about these questions to me is some of our questions are legitimately for God, sure. But if you think about it, most of the things we wonder are actually dealing with people and people in this world and relationships. You know, Daniel's problems weren't with God, they were with people. The people in his life made choices that negatively affected him. The people in his life betrayed him and hurt him. You know, when I was unemployed looking for a job, and I would be a finalist and think I was going to get a job, and I wouldn't get the job, which happened a handful of times, it wasn't that God sort of said, thou shalt not have this job. A person made a choice. And, and people got together and talked and made choices, and it was this interpersonal relationship that created this struggle. A person made a choice for me not to get a job, but what was my response? God, why have you done this? A lot of things in life when we question actually comes from relationships and people. Certainly there are things like health questions and disasters and things that come from God. Okay. But when you think about your relationship, you think about your relationship with people and how you think about people, this is really important. You know, because not only do we as Christians present something to the world, right? If you stand up in front of a church and say, I am a Christian, I am a member of this church, how you act reflects on Christ in the church. I mean, all you have to do, right, is Google, I did this today, it's so depressing. If you Google pastor or youth pastor on Google, and then you click the news feed, at least 50%, if not two-thirds or 75% are about, you know, sexual abuse, manipulation, embezzlement, just bad things. You know, how we present ourselves and how we carry ourselves in relationship is really important. And I get why Daniel was wanting God to save him so much. I really do. Because there's all this pressure and there's all this desire to want to live a good life and to want to do something about the Word becoming flesh in our life that we would present Christ to this world, but it's difficult. You know, we spend so much time worrying about circumstances and people. What if we spent that same amount of time thinking and talking to God? Well, stay with me here. I want to share a quick story with you. You know, this week I had a conversation with a friend about a lot of things, and one of the things he asked me was why I'm a pastor. Which, if we've ever had a coffee and I've told you this story, it's sort of funny. Um, you know, the, the, the short version is I never thought I'd be a pastor. And if you told friends of mine I'm a pastor, they would laugh um, from high school or, or younger or even college maybe, but we were talking and he sort of asked, you know, about my past and about my history and, and, and I said, you know, it's really hard for me to, to let people in all the time and to really trust people. I'm a very guarded person um, and, and, and I've worked on that, so, so I'm, I'm still working on it, so if I ever seem harsh, you know, forgive me. But he asked why and, and without even thinking, this came up and I've been thinking about it all week, this happened on Tuesday. Without even thinking about it, he asked me, well, why is it so hard for you? And I immediately said, well, because people hurt you. <laughs> and I sort of caught myself. And I said, yeah, that's some of our experience, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's no wonder why we have questions to ask God. We look at life, and so much of it deals with interpersonal relationship, and we've all been hurt. And, and, and we just don't want to hurt anymore. And the reason I bring this up is because 
my relationships in life have had a huge, profound impact on my relationship with God. You know, some people are very extroverted and they have lots of friends. Some people are more introverted and have a smaller circle. But no matter how we approach relationships and people in this life, it reflects on our relationship with God. You know, a lot of us, if, if we have a lot of friends, maybe we, we protect ourselves by being transactional, where we make a lot of friends, and, and, and we have boundaries and controls and, and, and restrictions on these friendships so people don't get too close, right? And so we just hop around from person to person to person to person to person to person getting what we want. Or, like me, you sort of build a little wall, right? You kind of hide in your castle, peek over the wall, you know, and you only let people in who, you, who really pass the vetting test so that you don't get hurt. Sort of a fight or flight type of thing. You know, but it seems to me, as I grow and as I try to grow in Christ and read this passage about how does the word becoming flesh change my life, that I spend far too much time worrying about people and relationships than I should do spending more time thinking about God and spending time with God. I spend way too much time as a pastor talking about God than I do talking to God. And maybe if we as people would be less guarded, less protective, more willing to give grace the way Christ gave grace to us, we would realize that if we spent more time in his grace. Because usually how you react to your friends and to the relationships in this world is how you react to God. Have you thought about that? How many of you have struggled with having transactional relationships and then find yourself going to God and wondering, why God are you not giving back to me? Why, God, are you not giving me what I want? I've done this, now you should do this. Or, like me, how many of you are sometimes really guarded? And you find yourself being really hesitant to let down the walls, even to God, because what if God hurts me? See, our relationships in life have a lot to do with our relationship with God. And if you're afraid of being hurt in a relationship, or if you need to control relationships and you're a control freak, Deep down, you are probably having a struggle with your intimacy with God. Because what if you get hurt? Let me say this. I even highlighted it in my notes. I'm going to try not to say it too fast. (laughs) Don't let relationships with God and people in this world define your relationship with God. Don't let relationships of this earth define your relationship with God. Because if we treat Jesus with this desire to control a relationship— or have fear of the relationship, we've completely missed the point of the incarnation. Look at verse 18 again. We cannot see God, so we must rely on Jesus to see God. And if we manipulate Jesus to try to get what he can give us out of our relationship, then we've missed out on the whole point of the word of God becoming flesh. And we've just made it another thing in our life to take advantage of. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, which we believe he is, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and God's plan, and the giver of grace upon grace through the Spirit, then our focus cannot be on people. It has to be on Christ. Every day, all the time. I mean, think about the people you love most in this world, and they could be the perfect, most wonderful people, but if your focus is on them above Christ, it will let you down. I love my wife, Jenna. I love my son, Berg. But they will let me down in this life. And one of my mentors has said, and I've heard it many times before, we have the harshest words with the people we love the most, right? If 
we put anything above this incarnated word, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, dwelling in our camp, and we ignore Jesus has come and set up his tent in our camp, and we say, no, you're second place. If any of us do that, we miss the point of the word becoming flesh. This is a really cool um, connector to this that I've seen through, through, through the story of Advent. And actually, Andy uh, preached a little bit about this this morning and mentioned it. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist's father is a guy named Zechariah. And, and when God said he and his wife were going to have a son, he didn't believe God. And so God said, okay, well, I'm going to do this fun thing, and you're not going to speak until after your son is born. And after his son is born, on the eighth day, they go to name him. And, and they go to name him, and, and everyone says, he should be called Zechariah, Zechariah. And, and, and his wife says, no, he's going to be called John. And they go to him and say, well, Zechariah, what do you think? And he writes down, his name is John. And then God loosens his lips, and, and he sings this beautiful song. And in this song, he, he, he has a really cool connection between Jesus and the book of Daniel. And he says this in verse, this is Luke chapter 1. But he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Okay, and I track with me. You remember back in, in, in the book of Daniel when Daniel's getting visions? And, and Daniel in, in chapter 8 gets this vision of this, this horn that is going to come up and raise up and conquer all other kingdoms. And this horn will one day go all the way to heaven, to the right hand of God. It's the same horn prophesied. A horn just represents a kingdom or a ruler. And the same horn prophesied in Daniel chapter 8, Zechariah mentions in his song about Jesus, and he says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And then verse 71, listen to this, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. How cool is that? That the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is not just good for heaven. It's not just good for later on. It's not just something that God did because he said he would do it, but to save us from anyone who would seek to harm us, to save us from anyone who would seek to do us wrong. What in the world could possibly get in the way of God sending us grace upon grace upon grace so that we might be fulfilled? If Jesus has already chosen to dwell with you, the only thing I can think of it would be our refusal to dwell with him. The only thing I could think of that would keep us from him is if we say no thank you. That if we're happy and content with who we are in our actions and our poor choices, and we say, you know what? This life I've chosen is good enough, Jesus. No thanks. I'm going to end with this. I'm reading uh, this fantasy book series. I love reading um, fiction because it just gets my mind off of life sometimes. And I read this quote, and it says this, there has to be a balance. The balance between who we wish to be and who we need to be. But for now, we simply have to be satisfied with who we are. Now, I wasn't reading it in a book. I was reading it in a Kindle, so I didn't throw it. Otherwise, I would have because I didn't want to break my Kindle. Think about this and how awful this is. This is the philosophy of many who just think, well, I'd like to be better. I'd like to do things differently, but you know what? Don't really know how. So I'm just going to settle with who I am. 
this presupposes two things that I don't like. One is that our actions define us. Okay? I'm going to go ahead and just let you know. Along with the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, um, what defines you is that you were made in the image of a good God, and you are good, and you are his child, and he loves you. So your actions, no matter what you have done, do not define you first. Second, what it's implying is <laughs> this is as good as it gets. And that's just not true. You want to know what the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, does for your Monday? It gives you the option to hang out with Jesus, to spend time with him, to dwell with him. We cannot see God, as John said in verse 18, but through Jesus we can be with him. I mean, think about that. None of us are pure enough to see God, and yet God is so good that in his grace he sent his son that we would be with him. And this is the crazy thing about Jesus. He wants to be with you. This isn't a chore for Jesus. This isn't that God the Father told Jesus the Son, hey, you have to go do this thing now. All right? It's not, you are not a burden to Jesus. Jesus wants you to be with him. And when I think about Advent and the promises in the Old Testament and books like Daniel and about God's grace and who Christ is, I get really emotional because what in the world have I done to deserve this grace? And as John writes, the grace upon grace upon grace. There's a reason Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. And when we understand that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we go to that Word, to go to God, it creates peace in our lives. It alleviates us of the fear of what other people can do to us and how the world can crush us because it gives us freedom. The one thing that stops you, stops me from experiencing this grace is me. Because true worship in our God and Jesus Christ leads to fullness. And it doesn't matter about the brokenness and and the stupid choices you've made and the broken relationships. That this horn uh, of God, this this Jesus who came, came to protect us from anyone, anyone who would do us harm. And so when you think of the incarnation, when you think about Christmas, know this. Christ has come to set up camp among us, to live among us, to dwell with us each and every day that we might have communion with him. Do not neglect this gift. His grace has been offered, his grace upon grace upon grace. And the only person that keeps you from experiencing it is you. Would you please pray with me? Lord, you are good. And Christmas is proof. Lord, you are mighty, and Christmas is proof. Lord, you are our Savior, and Christmas is proof of that. Thank you for sending your Son that we might have access to you in the midst of our sin and our struggles, that you would free us from anyone who desires to harm us, that you would save us from guarded relationships and fear in relationships, to know that if we put you first, Lord, you will fill us with all that we need that we might go then and give the same grace to others. Though this world may seek to do us harm, Lord, we know in the end we will be lifted up. We will be given our heavenly bodies, Lord, that we will finally see ourselves as you see us, your daughters and your sons. Lord, we give you thanks for this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, I'd like to invite our our music team back up.
come forward and uh, lead us in a few more songs as we respond to God's word.